it's a spiritual ask and it's also an invitation into the journey through pain into the transformation that we are called into throughout our life over and over again. It's a process of we need to grieve and also let go of the things that our baggage that we no longer need to carry so that we actually have space to pick up something new or to see the next thing that needs to show up in our lives and that is a very difficult process and so the title itself is intentionally disruptive in the sense that that the nakedness of letting go is so vulnerable is so exposing that it very much is like being fully exposed to the world in the way that going naked you know evokes in our mind when we think of that imagery and and through that vulnerability is the potential for transformation you're listening to the theopoetics podcast I'm your host, Tim Burnett, and my conversation today is with Teresa Mateus. Teresa is a Chicago-based trauma therapist, meditation and integrative healing practitioner, yoga teacher, professor of social work, and author and speaker on issues of spirituality, activism, and healing. She holds a Master's of Clinical Social Work from NYU and is the co-founder and executive director of the Mystic Soul Project and co-creator of TRAC, trauma response and crisis care network for movements. She is the author of multiple books, including her latest, Going Naked, The Camino de Santiago and Life as Pilgrimage. In this episode, Teresa and I discuss her own journey of inner transformation and healing through the image of the Camino and her new book, Going Naked. We talk about her understanding of liberation through the process of letting go, her practical wisdom around spiritual dimensions of healing and trauma, and the way in which ancestry and intersectionality play a role in the homecoming of one's personal identity. For more information about our sponsors, ARC, visit artsreligionculture.org. Thanks for listening. Hey friends, welcome to the Theopoetics Podcast. Uh, I've got a wonderful guest with me today. Teresa Mateus is here. Um, She has just written a new book called Going Naked, and I'm going to let her explain to you what that means because it's kind of a fun and uh, beautiful and provocative title. Uh, And But before we, we jump into talking about this new release and exploring some of her work, I just Wanted to say welcome to the podcast, Teresa, and uh, we'd love to hear a little bit about who you are and and what your work is in the world and, and what has formed you to come to to this place and and build into who you're becoming. So, Yes, and thank you for having me on the podcast. I'm glad to be here. And it's so funny, this, you know, the new title for the book, it sounds so scandalous all by itself. It, it's <laughs> definitely, as you said, provocative. Um, but I think also a little bit speaks to my own process, my own journey. So um, the beginning of the book and the beginning of my story are kind of all synonymous in that I talk about my origin story a bit, um, which I think is relevant particularly to my work, but also to sort of who I am. Um, I was, I'm an adoptee from Colombia, and so I was born in Bogota and adopted by a a white family um, and brought to New Jersey. But my origin story also kind of in some strange and bizarre divine connection, mystical connection also relates to my work in that I was, I was brought to an orphanage right after I was born that was run by 
great order nuns. And I was born on October 15th, which is a date that just passed this last week. And that is also the feast day in the Catholic tradition of Teresa of Avila. And so the nuns actually named me after her. And then my adoptive parents came from New Jersey and they had been having issues with fertility and miscarriages for years and years and had been praying for a child to come into their lives in their Catholic church in Summit, New Jersey. And it was Teresa of Avila Catholic Church. And so... I know, bizarre. And so I kind of always joke now that there was a mystical path lined up for me from the beginning that I could not avoid if I wanted to, because being yeah. named twice after a Spanish mystic kind of sets you on a journey, whether you plan for it or not. So the mystical piece has been a core to my whole life story. Um, but also I'm um I'm a sexual trauma survivor, and so while I had actually grown up really loving writing and reading, and I thought that my life would be books, uh, the trauma in my own life really led me to want to study trauma, explore the ways in which we can heal, and actually some really negative experiences in my own attempts to get healing through traditional mental health care was a part of the reason that I was really felt very strongly that there has to be ways to heal that aren't damaging in and of themselves. Yeah. Uh, And so for me, it was also emerging of this sort of spiritual mystical path and this idea that that trauma and that pain and that suffering itself is an existential journey. And that in some way to heal, there's also a piece of soul work that is inherently has to happen. And that also isn't, is not and definitely not when I was in grad school, uh, defining part of how we looked at mental health care. It's a little bit more, um, there's a little bit more annexing into that or, or moving into that space more organically now in mental health care, but it wasn't even a premise that was discussed. There were two separate universes. And so for me, my own journey of kind of pain and my own journey of mysticism kind of crossed paths and intersected each other as I became a mental health practitioner. So I got a master's in clinical social work. And, and then, and then the exploration of that has really been the rest of my life's work, this combination of like, how do we see what pain is? How do we heal from it? And how is it also a spiritual journey, this process moving through pain into transformation? Wow. I mean, that's so beautiful. There's so much there I want to dive into because I feel like part of my journey toward wholeness has also been one of working through trauma and suffering. Um, I'm a, a cancer survivor myself, and and we've been through a lot even in the last nine years on top of that that's been traumatizing. And as you said beautifully, I think part of the, the journey toward uh, mental health and wholeness is learning how not to re-traumatize yourself as you're trying to heal. And sometimes those clinical settings, like you said, can be places where um, there's almost like more. There's something more that we need. And so could you, maybe before we jump into talking about the book and some fun things, could you maybe help us understand this contemplative dimension of healing and what it offers you that perhaps a more traditional clinical setting might not? And do you see, what's the difference you see there? Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I think, and I think actually what has been exciting is that the sort of frontiers of trauma treatment now are looking at the spiritual dimension, not universally, but there's a larger conversation happening. Right. Uh, and, and so that is exciting and people bringing different perspectives on what spirituality is and what the practices are. For me, my sort of, I studied in 
in a variety of traditions that informed my own contemplative journey. So um, Christian mysticism was a deep piece of it, again, from my origin story forward and really actually rediscovering the practices of the Christian mystic tradition later in life after my trauma as actually a process of my own healing. But pieces of that journey as well were um, deepening in, in Buddhist and in Hindu traditions through through yoga practice. And all three of those really threaded together in a way in my own healing process that felt integral to healing as a whole. So yoga was the first actual entry point for me in my own trauma healing. And what I realized was that um, the embodiment of trauma is so critically important to understand. And that yoga, the practice of yoga beginning with this energy towards breath and, and focus and attention to breath is actually... I, I think the entry point to healing trauma in many ways because our breathing is how our body responds to trauma initially that triggers our body to know that we need to be in fight or flight mode. So we either hyperventilate or we freeze our breath when we're in stress. And then when you're traumatized and you end up having post-traumatic stress disorder, those processes get stuck. So you are a constant state of stalling your breath or hyperventilating your breath. And so actually the, the trigger to all of those stress responses begin with breath. And for me, yoga was an entry point to see that my body was actually in a stress response that I didn't realize and to regulate and change that process starting with my breath. And mm. then um, yoga studio actually that I had been I started practicing in when I realized that it was just just organically because I stumbled on it um, that it was critical to my healing to get deeper into this thing that was yoga. They were also um, they also hosted these Buddhist meditation teaching nights, and so I started doing some study into Buddhist meditation. And what I realized again in this weird stumbling organically almost into a a step process is that once I had gotten into my body, I also realized there was this chaos of response happening in my mind that was constantly swirling. Yes. And so actually the meditation and this mindfulness process of watching your thoughts with some distance from them actually became the step next process in me being able to untangle how my body and then my brain was processing this traumatic information. And then the third piece that came in was this, uh, uh, returning back to uh, Christianity, which was my tradition that I've been raised in, but hadn't been practicing for a long time through sort of the side door of Christian mysticism and learning cent Christian centering prayer, which is practice of sitting. And there's a, there's a silent um, quality of being able to not just anymore sit with your thoughts, but also um, opening up to something that is inherently the entry point of the divine and what i realized is that was the third piece that i needed that was that was the beginning of the sort of soul repair beyond just my body and brain regulating and that actually i did need to go for myself back to my root tradition and the sort of this the imagery of the divine that i knew best which came from the sort of christian rootedness but that all pieces of them were essential i wouldn't have been able to sit in silence for centering prayer if i hadn't regulated my body and found a way to manage my mind first yeah i love that threefold naming um, that you've done there of embodiment of mindfulness and of spiritual return you know i think um, you know, one of my favorite Celtic thinkers, John O'Donohue, says that spirituality is really the art of homecoming. And sometimes for those of us who take the path of descent into we're trying to come home to ourselves, there's just this 
asteroid field of trauma and hurt and things that we've got to work through shadow and false self and um and you know this as we you know are on the theopoetics podcast we like to reflect theologically from the perspective of embodiment and experience and so um you know often this idea of healing comes up in these conversations because so many of us are wondering how to come home and and i know that and so just first of all thank you for naming that because i think that's really a beautiful offering to 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 give people on their own healing journeys but um that that idea of homecoming seems to be thematic and you know indicative of your new book in a sense too and and so, um, again, you've just written this book that just was released earlier this week, so it's a privilege to get to talk this, this close to the release, but um, it's called Going Naked. So my first question with that is, what is the invitation to go naked? <laughs> yeah, um, it really is. A, it's a spiritual ask in the sense that um, it's a spiritual ask, and it's also an invitation to the journey through pain into the transformation that we we are called into throughout our life over and over again so in some ways it's an invitation into something that is already happening in all of us anyway but this idea that that throughout our lives we have these moments uh, or periods where something is broken open and something is lost and oftentimes necessary things are lost and sometimes things that we don't want are lost as well and so it's a process of we need to grieve and also let go of the things that are baggage that we no longer need to carry so that we actually have space to pick up something new or to see the next thing that, that needs to show up in our lives. And that is a very difficult process. And so the title itself is, is disruptive or intentionally disruptive in the sense that that the nakedness of letting go is so vulnerable is so exposing that it very much is like being fully exposed to the world in the way that going naked you know evokes in our mind when we think of that imagery and and through that vulnerability is the potential for transformation yeah i mean and i think uh, you know that 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 invitation is so vital you know to that that healing path and but often i think the early stages of orientation to your own vulnerability in that way can be um can be difficult in the sense that you feel unsafe to be that vulnerable for the first time um and your risk it's a risk to to know love in that way can love really reach all the way down into all those places within me that I, I can't even bring love toward, you know? And so I'm curious for you, you know, as you've, as you've had to do your own soul work um, and, and really had the courage and bravery to enter into what that would mean to transform those deep places, um, how, how do you see this path or this Camino as, as a, a metaphor, a paradigm, an, an invitation to, to go on that journey toward vulnerability? Mm -hmm. Yeah, and the, so the subtitle of the book, Going Naked, is The Camino de Santiago and Life as Pilgrimage. And so um, it also, I've so this is my third book, and while each of the first two books are anecdotally pieces of my life embedded in them, um, this feels also for me the most personal, the most really directly exposing of myself as well so in many ways the invitation also is for people to come on a journey that that is really um is risky 
is risky for me in the sense of even the sharing of it. And that is really the most specifically memoirish book that I've written. There are practices at the end of each chapter to invite people to process their own pilgrimage as they move through the story. But the bulk of the book is really my story as an emblem of how life is pilgrimage. And I did actually walk the Camino de Santiago just one week, which is uh, 114 kilometers exactly, because I think the number matters when you're physically walking it with your body. Yeah. Uh, and so it's also an invitation on the physical walk itself, but the, the book is told in three, each chapter is told in three parts my life before Camino, my life on Camino, my life after Camino. And each chapter follows a theme as I'm walking along Camino that are things that I'm learning from it that are also the metaphor that translate into life. So it's an invitation physically on sort of to, to join me in the imagination of physically walking this, the, the Camino itself. But it's also a journey and an invitation to how is our life like pilgrimage and that we often think we have to sort of go away or escape or remove ourselves from the world to have these sort of journeys and uh, you know um, epic moments and there's a there's a romanticism about it and there's a mysticism about it but yeah. also a reflection that really actually the life we're living every day is just as much that same kind of walk mm -hmm. that's beautiful yeah i mean as a process thinker myself, the whole thing is movement, you know, it's, that's what our lives are, you know, in, in almost every dimension. And so, uh, so this idea of sort of naming that and being aware and present to the inner movements of our lives, I think is really important for people because it's so easy for us, not only to, to get stuck in places, you know, whether it's ideas or past hurts or worries, you know, but, but to view our lives in a sense of tr trying to get home in such a way that you just can finally stop having them go anywhere. You know what I mean? Like coming to rest for many people means like just getting it right, just landing finally. And that's not quite the invitation that we're talking about when we're talking about a pilgrimage. And so um, could you talk about for a moment, maybe like some of your experience on the Camino, like what started to well up within you and, and how did that idea of pilgrimage or journey start to, to become very real to you in your own experience on the Camino? Mm -hmm. Well, it's interesting because the very beginning of the Camino ended up being in some ways the overarching metaphor that I did not intend on of going naked, which was that when I arrived in the airport in Santiago, which is sort of, you get to Santiago, then you make your way to, well, from where we were going, since it was a hundred kilometers, we were gonna make our way to Sadia, which was our starting point, and then make our way, you know, build our way back to Santiago. So I flew into Santiago, and when I arrived there, um, my baggage, my backpack did not arrive with me. <laughs> oh no <laughs> everything i had i had so well curated i had selected each item specifically to make sure i had everything i needed for this journey that i would be physically walking with my body and so all of the items seemed so critical to that um to that journey and 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 so that my bag wasn't too heavy but it had everything i needed and so i arrived there with nothing uh, <laughs> wow and with no full expectation that it would arrive because apparently I had also selected to do Camino 
during the week of the largest European-wide vacation period. So oh, it's a wow. week where everybody in all, in all of Europe goes on vacation. And as a result, there were so many bags uh, that had been misplaced, misdirected, in the wrong place. This apparently happens every year at this time. And the lady at the baggage counter pretty much said, I don't know, it may come, it may not come at all, come check back tomorrow. So in many ways, it set me up for this idea of, you know, all this, the anticipation that you're, that you need certain things, right, in life. Yeah. That you need things to get through that actually, once I processed the sort of shock and loss that I might actually I'm going to still do this walk because there's no way I'm not doing it, but I may actually have to do it with nothing. And so then that, the, or it was, it was this sort of joking origin of going naked that my friend Marisol, who walks with me and I started talking about right away, which was, oh yeah, it's just naked from the start. I just have what I'm wearing and I was going to take her little, um, her daughter, her daughter's backpack from Target. She had this like child's cloth backpack and I was going to stuff like three things in it and a toothbrush and that was going to be that and so for me um the metaphor of the walk before I even was able to get on a road and start moving my feet was already happening from baggage claim wow. in San Diego airport and and really the overarching lesson that everything I thought I needed for life I actually didn't need any of it all at all to make the journey yeah Oh, wow. That's wonderful. Yeah. And I mean, what an apropos sort of, uh, <laughs> you know, experience to to set your heart and mind in that place of letting go, you know, of realizing what it means to 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 move through the, the pilgrimage in that way. And it reminds me in you sharing that of one of the lines I saw from your book that uh, says basically that this kind of liberation, this letting go, this freeing yourself up, this this moving toward vulnerability and nakedness, uh, this there's a label that you also need to know about liberation, which is that it will tear you down to nothing first because you have to lose it all to know that you never needed it in the first place. Mm-hmm. And I think that, I mean, in what you just shared, that seems to me to sort of encapsulate the heart of that insight, you know. Um, and... So, so as you, you know, are, are thinking about this and, and journeying through the Camino and then and coming to life after the Camino, like, what, is it, what does it look like for you to stay in that inner place of Camino, of liberation, where you are trying to bring that wisdom and, and perspective to bear on your everyday life now? Like, how, how do you stay in that place of liberation and losing um, and, and setting the sort of root of your identity there um, and now in your everyday life? Well, and I think life gives us all these wonderfully uh, chaotic opportunities to do that. You know, like life is never without the opportunity to need to let go, whether we want to or not. So even the, you know, the book that I thought I was going to write was going to be very much the pilgrim's journey, the romantic ideal of on the road and everything I learned. And then it ended up so much being about looking and excavating my own life because because literally, you know, within six months that I returned back from Camino, I was going on book tour for my second book, Sacred Wounds, which is the last time I saw you, actually. Um, and That's my right. marriage fell apart. My marriage mm-hmm. fell apart, actually, the week that I saw you. Uh, oh, my God. My marriage 
ended while I was in Redondo Beach on the phone, um, which I talk about, actually. I talk about the event we were at. I talk about how it all happened. I talk about that whole, there's like a whole section of one of the chapters that's narratively about that. So oh my God, yeah, so I'm going naked in this way at Camino where I lose the backpack and I realize I don't need any of the things. And then I literally come home and life offers me uh, the very painful opportunity to have to live into that in a right. very visceral way. Wow. In which, I, you know, I literally within like a month after or like within a few weeks after that, I'm driving away from the house that I lived in for six and a half years with just what's in my car and my two dogs. You know, and so it was this, it was lit, it couldn't have been more literally the representation of what had happened and what I had learned on Camino of just taking what you need and having to let everything else go than me driving away from my house and a whole life with nothing but what was in my car. Wow. Yeah. I mean, thank you for sharing that, by the way. And I didn't, I didn't know that about our time together in Redondo Beach, but, um, but yeah, I, I think that it's those moments, you know, that that become the great invitations to transformation too, you know. Um, but usually it's something that we tend to only notice in retrospect, you know, um, because in the moment it can be tumultuous and we're dealing with all the emotions and everything, you know. So, but, uh, but wow, what a, I mean, what a radical invitation to transformation, you know. I, um I think I think many of us, our natural tendency is to sort of shy away and retreat, you know, when those kinds of things happen to, to sort of recoil from the pain, you know, and and not want to go into it. But it seems that for you, it, it has become a teacher. It has become an invitation. I'm wondering what it what it is in your perspectives that is that has allowed you to actually turn toward the hurting place or turn toward the difficulty or the struggle and to let it do its work rather than you know, kind of running away and, and what, what has that been like for you? And how has that been something that you've learned to do with, with your life? Yeah. And I think the initial learning, I mean, the learning curve for all of us on that is tough. And I think even when we know we should do it, there, there is resistance and hesitancy. And for me, going through the journey of trauma post-traumatic stress disorder and healing from my sexual trauma in late adolescence and then the healing process going all the way through my mid-20s, that was, I spent three years just trying to avoid it, you know, yeah. just not trying to look at it. Um, and in the beginning of this book, I talk about this process of comfortable numbness, that, that we can just get used to the thing that is uncomfortable to the point that it becomes comfortable. Yeah. Um, and actually, um, Anthony DeMillo, who um, is a, was a Jesuit priest and psychotherapist, uh, he, which combination I really enjoy. He had the mystical, you know, and yeah. psychotherapy background that I, that I just really enjoy hearing others who do that. He, he has this whole video series that you can actually still get on YouTube that's called Wake Up. And he really, he has these beautiful metaphors as well about looking at this idea of of how we stay how we stay asleep you know how easy it is to stay asleep and how often he saw and i see as well you know in as therapists on the other side you know viewing people getting stuck and just 
the commitment to stay there is so strong because it yeah. is easier than moving through the difficult things. So I think the learning curve for me was that first major huge trauma was, was long. It was three years of not doing that work. And so I think also what I learned on the other side of healing was that we can't actually move through the things that we think we can't. But right. actually the pain that we think we can't survive is survivable. And so that initial lesson for me, I think, is what has allowed me, as other things have come up in my life, when I'm ready for it, and faster than the three years of the first time, to remember that truth, that I can, that yeah. I can get through it, that it will not kill me to move through pain. Because I think that's the illusion that pain tells us, is that it's too much and we cannot do it. But the truth is that we always can. We just don't know that we can until we start taking those steps. Right. Yeah. And in my own experience too, that there, there is a you that survives the pain that is different than the you who's attached to the pain. You know what I mean? There's, there's a sort of, and, and we could even talk about this in terms of ego or false self and true self like there. And, and I think that invitation to move through the pain is, is one in which we have to have a recognition of that, that self that is held in love or is catalyzed by love even um, in and through those places of hurt. And so, um, so for you, as you, as you kind of learn to do that work and now it's become sort of a, you know, a life methodology that, you know, you now have that tool in your belt, you know, no matter what will come in the future of your, your journey. Um, what, what for you became the, the essence or the courage to move through that? Like what part of yourself did you encounter that you quite maybe didn't know was there because of your hurt as you, as you move through that into that, in this new place? Mm. Yeah, I think that's a great question. And, and, and also I want to note that the moving from one person into the person you become also requires grief work. And we don't, we don't often acknowledge the yeah. necessity of grief work in Western culture. We've, we avoid grief. We try to make the grieving process as short as possible. Um, the ritualist, the ritualizing of grief is often uh, bounced over, and we just really can't do that because there's so much that we need to grieve as part of that transformative process. Or we don't, we're not, we don't fully get to become whatever it is we're meant to become next. Um, and I think for me. The, the journey always looks a little different. The version of myself that's moving through into something new always looks a little different. And what I talk about in the book um, is, in a weird way, is a part of me also meeting a part of the divine and part of and part of like ancestral guides that also show up. So it's not the, the me that shows up to help me isn't just me. It's a tribe. It's a whole right. ancestral tribe that's actually there to support, to protect, to walk with me and um in the book the one that i highlight the most is teresa de avila that she has shown up throughout my life in really visceral ways in the places of my deepest pain sometimes to swear and shout at me sometimes to laugh at me wow yeah you know, but always to companion with me and um and so i think that's the important piece is yes there's a there is a part of me that is that is a soul that is so connected to the divine that is stronger than the sort of living breathing entity that I am. But there's also these, there's also this tribe of ancestors that show up from 
various places and spaces when I need them the most. And really it's their strength that helps me push through where I think I can't. Yes. That's, that's beautifully said. I, um, friend of mine out at Vanderbilt, uh, says that, that grief is really only love under the condition of absence, you know? And so there's this sort of circle, I think that gets drawn around our grief by love, you know, that, that helps us with, with the divine, with ancestors, with partners and, and a circle of care in our lives to, to go into that place of grief in a way that can be transformative, um, and cathartic and, and can help us to release, um, and so thank you for that invitation, because I do, I, I couldn't agree with you more that in our Western culture, there's just not space for it. And there's not, there's not a fostering of it. There's not an encouragement to, to really go to that place of grief. And so um, we need voices, you know, like yours that are, are able to name that and invite that. Um, because I, I really think we weep our way to our core. I mean, that's, I don't know any other way to really say it, you know, and, um, and that's not, that's not fun. <laughs> you know, it's not like the you know, the, the, it's not a gospel that people really want to hear. You know what I mean? Right. right. Uh, you don't, you don't want to have to weep your wealth, your way to, you know, to your transformation. We yeah. want it to look, we want it to look nicer than that. And actually even on the physical come, you know, my friend Marisol and I would, were joking. There's, you know, there's a phrase you say when you pass people on Camino, that's just when Camino, you, like it's the thing you say on the road, have a good journey. Um, and we joked that like the further you walk or the closer you walk towards Santiago, that as, as you break open, whatever it is, it needs to break open that the Buen Caminos become, you know, f said through tears and sobbing. And yes. so it's just like, this, <laughs> this completely soul wrenching Buen Camino that you're sharing with the other person who's weeping, whatever they need to process at the same time. And so, so again, I also see that as the metaphor is like, it breaks open, it mm -hmm. makes us totally exposed. And, and also the catharsis of that thing, um, of that process of, of like weeping your way through is a, is such a critical part of the process, whether you're physically yeah. on a pilgrim's journey, uh, road or you're doing it in life. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's, it's a forgiveness almost, you know, it's, it's coming to that inner place where, yeah, where you can forgive reality, you know, um, and uh, so, people can acknowledge you in that, that you can see, yeah. like so the, the metaphor of the Camino also is that you can look at someone else and they can see you fully and you can see them fully. And you're both walking your own journey because you have your own stuff to work through. But that authenticity of being able to be seen in that pain and to see others in that pain is also a piece of it. Mm. Mm. Yes, it's so good. Um, and you also named this idea of really connecting with ancestors. And so I think there's something about coming home to ourselves that, that helps us know more about who we are and, and connecting in that way. And you, it, you had mentioned that in, in your new work, you sort of explore these themes of identity and race and gender and ability and sociopolitical context, you know? And, and so for you, as, as you're on this journey of going naked and, and coming, coming home to yourself and, and beginning to live and see from that place, how did, how, or how did those, all those dynamics, that intersectionality sort of come to, come to rest in you uh, on that path? Like what, what role did ancestors in that, that whole um, intersectional thing play for you? Yeah. And I, and I think it, 
the beginning of the book and the beginning of the story and, and what I said in the very beginning of the podcast about the origin story of being born in Colombia named after Teresa de Avila from Spain and and then also taken to New Jersey and raised by white parents as a brown girl that's the origin of that intersection you know the yeah, intersectionality yeah. of of all of those pieces couldn't be more juxtaposed and and also really complicated than than the origin story and for me the walking of camino and also the exploration uh, excavation of my early life before camino and the exploration of life after camino i think helped me the the pressing through that pain required me to uh, explore who i was in my fullness explore the ways in which i felt really um unable to be that fullness that that being a brown girl raised in a white family in a white cultural system um, and even much of my spirituality being informed by a white cultural system that wasn't the fullness of who I was particularly in the in the in the Christian contemplative world which has been traditionally very white as it was defined and I say as it was defined because it isn't the only universe and it isn't the only manifestation of actually what contemplation can look like within the Christian tradition but it's the expression that's most visible. Yes. Uh, that 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 was not the fullness of who I was, right? That was a, those were parts of a story that informed who I was, but also the being raised in a white culture, the being learning spiritual practices within a white um, process and system was also negating, diminishing, invisibilizing a core part of who I was from that very beginning of my story as a Colombian you know, um, as with Spanish roots and also indigenous roots. And so for me, it was letting the fullness of who, giving myself permission to be the fullness of who I was and also figure out what that was. Because being an adoptee, which I realized wasn't exclusive to an adoptee experience, but even just being a person of color in a Western world in which whether or not you're adopted, I realized all these other people of color were also having similar experiences of not being connected to their roots, of not necessarily knowing the language of the country, of their family's origin, that there was a disconnect that was beyond me that also felt very welcoming in terms of, oh, there's a community that wants to process this. And and so for me, the pain of everything that happened after Camino also allowed me the open space to say, you know what, I'm just going to figure out exactly who I am and I'm going to be exactly who I am in an unapologetic way. Um, and actually the closing, the last chapter and then the epilogue of the book moves into the formation of what now is uh, the nonprofit that I co-founded and executive direct the Mystic Soul Project, which is people of color centered um, engagement with spirituality activism and healing which to me also was the culmination of this whole story that i really felt like healing and spirituality were deeply connected that i had learned through bringing more of that stuff into also activist space in in the latter few years that that movements were also had at a loss in terms of the healing and the spiritual dimensions and and that was wounding the ways in which those things showed up in the world and that that there was an ability to say, let's create space where actually we can all figure out what the wholeness of ourselves are as people of color, living in a world in, in which a lot of erasure has happened in our lifetime and previous generations that has left this sense of, of 
void, you know, the sense of emptiness in which we had to seek out the things that we wanted from other people's traditions or from traditions that were that were devoid of our root traditions because of this kind of erasure. And what does it look like actually, not just for me um, to figure that piece out, but that actually this next step of the journey is a collective process. Mm. Yeah, I'm seeing a, a consistent theme in your work, which is as you sort of come home to yourself, and again, the intersectionality of all that that has meant, um, uh, you know, especially as a person of color in, in centrally Anglo contexts where that erasure can happen. And, and you have to almost, you almost have to work not only doubly hard, but way harder in order to come back to that, you know what I mean? And to come to that, that there's this natural flow in your own journey from, you know, Teresa coming home to herself to then connecting that to a, a collective or a group of people who need that healing. And, and so you sort of naturally just create spaces for people, whether it's through your books or through Mystic Soul, um, so they, they can experience that too. And so, you know, I, I think that's beautiful. I just want to say thank you for sharing that because I had the opportunity, you know, to be at that first Mystic Soul gathering in Chicago in the wintry days um, when we were there and it was just so meaningful, you know, so deeply meaningful um, to just even be a, a part of that and just to be present with that. Um, and so tell us a little bit more about like the heart behind the Mystic Soul Project and what you all have been up to in the world and how, um, how that's creating that POC centric space uh, of healing for people. Yeah. And, and just to your point of the sort of getting getting what we get to give it away the epilogue of the book i talk specifically about that and actually uh, one of the things that we were up to after that first conference was i decided to do a, a poc only pilgrimage to avila so i actually went back to avila with mystic soul folks which was wow. really profound and also was this reminder for me and i talk about it in the epilogue that we we get it to give it away. So like I was given pilgrimage to give it away. Um, and in, in, and that has its own grief process that actually we don't get to hold on to things, right? We wanna like, we wanna like, you know, scurry, like put things together like squirrels and then burrow a little hole and put them in and like keep them as, as precious to us, yeah. right? Yeah. Um, and that actually that's also a lesson is that we get it to give it away. We don't, we don't get to, hold on to the preciousness and keep it static that actually it needs to that it, that even what we receive is meant to also be transformed and moved onward into something else to make room for us for newness and for freshness of whatever the next thing is to come um, and I think mystic soul has taught me that a lot in general in creating mystic soul it was I think we do this about everything you know I did I did this around trauma healing is like we build the thing that we want or that we wish we had had um, and then as a result, we're not necessarily the receivers of it. Like I, I'm a kind of receiver of mystic soul as a community and seeing yeah. it grow, but it isn't really, it isn't for me in the same way that it is, you know, that it, that it's building and growing for other people and that other people are now building and growing it, which yeah. I think is the beauty of it. So we had the first conference that you were at, let's see, a little over two and a half years ago, I guess, or something like that. Um, and then we did our second, con and I think there was around like 250 people that came. And then this past summer, because we realized, <laughs> I realized that it was, it was a 
very lucky thing that we did a conference in January and that it didn't snow. Everyone didn't get snowed in or snowed out. Right. Um, I wasn't thinking about it. I moved from Florida to Chicago and I hadn't even thought about weather as a factor. So we moved it to June, which is a lovely time to be in Chicago for people. Um, and we had almost 400 people this time. Wow. So I think also the profound thing for me is that you know, and this is this has also been true to me about both writing and then the process of being a reader of other people's stories is that we think that our story is this unique thing that is so different from everyone else's, but that there's resonance in storytelling, there's resonance in process that that actually there's there's synchronicity in what I feel and experience. And when I reflect that out honestly and vulnerably, that other people get to see themselves and feel themselves in that. And the grow, and I felt like that about my when I write my books. But Mystic Soul is this project-wide embodiment of how that feels to me. In the sense that I thought, oh, we'll be lucky if a few people show up. Let's see if anybody cares about this idea that that we've, um, you know, for people of color being annexed in so many ways in so many universes, every field that I'm in, right? Spirituality, mental health. Um, it's there's always there's always an erasure, there's always this invisibility, invisibilizing. And so let's see if other people feel that at all in their space. And then it was just amazing, not just that people showed up, but we had an application, we've had an application process. And I just remember, you know, as each application, I read every application the first year. And I just remember sitting in the evening and reading them and just weeping because of wow. how powerful that each yeah. one was like a testament to people's feeling of not being seen mm. and to people's hopefulness that there might be space where they could be who they were wanted to be you know so many people said the same thing over and over again i've been waiting for a place like this my whole life wow. um, and saying that they were crying while they were writing the application you know filling out the application right um so it just i just realized that we had hit a nerve of of deep yearning in community that didn't in it for a community that didn't exist, but wanted to exist. And so for me, it's mostly been putting it out there. And then the community has just so beautifully built itself, you know, and grown itself. And we have this robust, you know, Facebook group where people will come on and ask all the questions that they want, you know, that, you know, about, I'm looking for a book on ritual and ancestry, who has resources on intergenerational trauma, all the things that yeah. are just so relevant for community and that people want to have those, uh, those touchstones for. And also every year that I see people's submission for workshops or even people that are just coming from reading applications, I'm like, this community, the people of color and queer and trans people of color community is overwhelming creative and vibrant and there's and there's all these resources and things that people are building in the world that largely in the spaces and places they're in are not seen and so mystic soul is is the place to lift that up and in most recently so this third book I decided to publish through what we're calling now mystic soul press which is an extension of the mystic soul project which to me was a dream that I had probably from the first conference being somebody who would love literature, being somebody who believed in the power of words to be transformative and also representational, right? So all of the mental health books are dominantly written by white people, even more dominantly by white cis men. And, um, 
And the same goes for pretty much any field. And so what does it look like to begin to curate the resources from a brilliant community uh, with things that they, you know, in, in resources that the community already wants, but also that they, these like folks uh, by and large, but definitely people of color, definitely writing outside of traditional streams of things, don't have access to the publishing houses that would actually publish the works that need to be in these publish these kind of works that would need to be in the world. And so what does it look like to build a small way, you know, it's not gonna be a large, huge press, you know, but a small project that can begin to slowly offer up some of those things that wouldn't have space in the traditional publishing world. It's mm, wonderful. Yeah. Um, thank you again for, for your work with Mystic Soul and, and with this, this new press. Um, and uh, you also mentioned to me earlier that there's another project that, that you're going to be coming out with in, in 2020, which is um, some work around trauma response for social movements. Um, so so what, is, what dimension of your work is that and how is, how is that going to flesh itself out in the world? Yeah, and it feels like an extension of all of it. I feel like heal, yeah. trauma, healing, you know, spirituality and healing has been the common thread. So lots of times people say, what do you do? And it's like, I have to list seven things. But I always say they really are interconnected, you know, in a way that makes sense to me. But so this is an extension of specifically, my work is, has consistently been trauma focused. And over the last say, like, let's say five years now, increasingly for one reason or another, I've been engaging um, initially, I think just by chance with more activists and organizing spaces. And then as I began to sort of understand organizing and movements better, I always am really clear, people sometimes label me an activist, but I wanna be clear that I don't, I think organizers do hard work and I do not mean to just throw that label on myself. I don't hold yeah. that label. I, I feel like that my place within movement culture and the movement ecosystem is the healer role. And so that we yeah. each have place and space that we can't, I think that's another thing people think, you know, all of activism, all of movements need to look like the front lines, but there's a thousand things that we can do to serve what needs to be done in the world in terms of social change. And healing has always been my thing. And I realized that, you know, there are people that are best equipped to be on the front lines. Mm. I am best equipped to understand trauma. And as I began to, you know, be asked more into movement spaces, I realized how much trauma there is in movement yes. space. That the, and that the trauma is interpersonal and intrapersonal and that it's not just about what you're receiving from the external messages of whatever the other is, you know, outside of the movement community, but that within each, the, the ecosystems of movement communities are often built upon our hurt. And some of that galvanizes us to do good, but it also creates more hurt because we're actually... Yes wounding we're continuing to wound ourselves often by how we have to be in movement space and then wounding others because of the, the frenetic nature of movement space there isn't even time to address person to person harm and so there's just so all these layers of things that i began to see evolve and particularly in our current socio-political moment on the rise in in massive ways in really really dangerous and volatile ways in terms of people's spiritual and emotional care for themselves and for their communities. And so I wanted to take sort of the knowledge and information that I had had from learning other kinds of trauma 
um, to be able and and spending the last few years really trying to learn and understand movement trauma to provide a way both for activists, but also for mental health and healing care providers to understand this specific trauma and for activists and organizers so that they could understand what was happening, you know, under the surface. Because when I talk to movement folks about it, they're like, oh, yeah, that is what's happening. But I didn't have I couldn't see I couldn't name it or see it the way that you're describing it. And so for there to be in understanding and information so that movements can actually help themselves build healthier ecosystems. And then what also I've been hearing um, particularly like when large things happen. So I spent a week in Standing Rock and I spent a week in Charlottesville right after um, the August 8th violence with uh, Unite the Right rally. And what I was hearing from both like mental health professionals and then other ancillary professionals, medical clergy was, we want to do something to help respond to these things, but we have no training. We don't like either understand trauma or even if we understand trauma, we don't understand movements. And definitely people don't understand how the two intersect. And so I wanted a way to equip people in movements, but also build, build a contingent of care providers who are actually equipped to respond to this kind of trauma so that they could be useful for people in movements. And both on front lines when, when really bad things happen as almost like a, a Red Cross type triage response and to be able to have teams that you could mobilize to send places. Because often the most requests and most help I get asked for are places that are more remote that don't like, I always say Oakland can take care of Oakland. You know what I mean? Like Oakland has been resourced, like there's healers galore, like the movement stuff has been happening. People know, then they know the, the ecosystem is strong. But like in a remote place in in the deep south outside, you know, two hours outside of a major city when something happens, people don't have any resources. And right. so what does it look like one to be able to have teams that could mobilize to places that are trained professionals? And also, how do you actually equip the communities in places that are under-resourced so that when teams have to leave after something happens, there's also an infrastructure that can build out and that actually understands what this is. So... This project is called TRAC, Trauma Response and Crisis Care for Movements. And um, we've had some initial conversations and dialogues with other healing professionals around what would this look like and how would we create um, formula of training around this. And launching in January 2020 will be an initial baseline of training. One of the things I wanted to do is something that is accessible for as many people as possible, and then do advanced training for professionals who really want to be responder, kind of first responders. So the first leg of this will be a process of just doing a baseline training. And so there's, um, we're, we're going to be doing, um, it's called Trauma and Transformation Certificate, which is going to be a 12-week on, all-online program that folks are going to be able to participate in. Um, we're working with a, a new, newly formed um, online school that's called the School for Global Citizenry. And actually, if you know the work of Faith Matters Network and the movement chaplaincy work that, um, that Jen Bailey and Mickey Scott B. Jones are working on, they just launched their their program actually through the same online forum. So I'm really excited about it. I think the way that they've set up the online system is allows for tons of interaction and it's a way to make it accessible, not just nationally, but they have learners across the world. So globally, a baseline way to train folks in trauma, which honestly is like 
just my dream because I think everyone should have be trauma informed. Yeah. And this also offer knowledge, not just, it won't just be specific to movement trauma, but it will look at the whole ecosystem of how trauma uh, is shaped and also how healing and transformation can look. And then there'll be an advanced training that will follow that for folks that want to go more in depth from like a clinical level. Hmm. Uh, that sounds wonderful. Um, and where can people find that when it comes out just through that, the new network? Yeah. yeah. So, um, all of my sort of social media spaces and places I'll be posting it. And then the school of global citizenry.com is where is the hub for it. So that's also where people will be able to register. Hmm. Great. And where, where else can people keep up with you on online if they are interested in the book or if they want to keep up with you on social media or how can they connect with you? Yes. So um, all of my handles are Teresa Mateos, Chai, C-H-I, uh, for Chicago, which is where I'm based. So Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. I'm finally learning Instagram. I feel like being an ex-lennial, I think is what I'm supposed to be called. My, uh, like, the more that social media gets advanced, the less I know what to do with it. But I'm just beginning to learn Instagram. But I spend the most of my time in the postings that I do have dominantly been on Facebook, although I'm trying to use both. I haven't gotten to Twitter that much yet because I really don't know how to say clever things in short sentences. So <laughs> Just write books uh, instead, you know. Yeah, I'm like, I'm like a long form writer, so I really don't know what to do with Twitter. But I'm on there, so sometimes I put things on there. No, I hear you. I, I call myself a millennial, you know, so it's the same thing. Um, because yeah, we're kind of on that cusp, we're probably same, same generation there. Um, but well, wonderful. Thank you so much for taking the time today uh, to, to be with us and have this important conversation about going naked. And so I just wanted to thank you for your wisdom and for your bravery to go on the journey and especially for going naked yourself and uh, for all that that offers um, the world in terms of a transformative invitation. So thanks again for being here. Thank you for having me. Take care, Teresa. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Theopoetics podcast. If you like what you heard here, you can log on to iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, or any other podcast platform and subscribe and leave us a rating. You can also follow along with Teresa's work on social media at at Teresa Mateus Chai, that's C-H-I, and get her new book, Going Naked, over at Amazon.com. You can also keep up with us on social media at at TheopoeticsCast, or tweet at me at at T.D. Burnett. Also, don't forget to check out our sponsors, ARC, at artsreligionculture.org. Once again, I'm your host, Tim Burnett. Love wisdom, create beauty, and make peace, everyone.